me a duck, a duck please me, that's my duck from the jumper tree. A duck say quack, quack, my cat say fiddle I did. I bought me a cow, my cow please me, that's my cow from the jumper tree. My cow say moo, moo, my duck say quack, quack, Make no such thing as Indian songs. <laughs> the shark knows something. It's storage. I don't want him filling your head with heathen ideas. It's This may be the last time. That is a Muskogee hymn that was sung on the Trail of Tears. And it continues to be sung uh, in Creek churches uh, all over Oklahoma. That particular version is sung by an artist by the name of Elisa Harkins and Danny Wesley. And uh, Elisa is from Miami, Oklahoma, and she uh, does a lot of electronic music. That incorporates traditional language and also sculpture and dance in her work. Um, it's almost like performance art. And uh, check her out. These songs, I believe, are available on SoundCloud. Uh, you can follow her on Spotify. And uh, you can download them also on iTunes. Not to mention there's a documentary about uh, Creek Hymns um, and this song in particular by an Oklahoma filmmaker named Sterling Harjo. And it's called This This May Be the Last Time. Um, and I think that is available on Netflix um, or Amazon Prime. I know that it was at one point. Hopefully it's still there. But uh, yeah, this one kind of explores um, the history, the oral history of all of the Creek Hymns. And uh, it's a fantastic film. And uh, check it out. I highly encourage you to do so. If you want to know more about these Creek hymns and you want to hear all of them, um, there's a couple ways you can do that. Uh, there's a lot of these churches that sell CDs. And I know the uh, Gunjati United Methodist Church sells some. I know Sand Creek hymns 
sell some, and I believe even the Muscogee Creek Nation, through their language department, they also sell CDs of Creek hymns. So I'm trying to fill um, as much Oklahoma music and as much Oklahoma artists into this episode as I possibly can, because we are talking about another Oklahoma artist and actor uh, by the name of Will Sampson, and we're also going to be discussing his 1979 made-for-TV movie, Fishhawk, and we're also going to kind of delve into the book as well and talk about uh, the similarities and mainly the differences between the two. If you missed part one, we talked a little bit about the the effects that alcohol uh, has on Native Americans. And we talked a little bit about how, according to Indian Health Services, uh, that Indians are three and a half times more likely than other uh, Americans to die from cirrhosis of the liver. Um, they're also four times more likely to die from accidents and three times more likely to die from homicide or suicide, all in which... Uh, alcohol is usually present. Um, we also talked a little bit about how um, uh, anywhere between 5% to 25% of Native American babies may be born mentally or physically damaged by fetal alcohol syndrome. And compared to less than one-fifth of 1% of the general population. So uh, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that alcoholism is not a problem. But what we were trying to kind of get down to the uh, root of the matter is how. How did it become so relevant in Indian culture? Goodwin found that the sons of alcoholics were four times more likely to become alcoholics themselves than were the children of non-alcoholics. Even if they were never exposed to their alcoholic parents after birth. Almost without exception, the alcoholic group that he had studied uh, had more drinking problems than the controls. Um, That included blackouts and hallucinations, loss of control, uh, morning drinking, seizures, um, and hospitalizations. And yet in a third study seemed to contradict everything that he had uh, thought to be true when he removed children from known alcoholic families and placed them in homes where there was no alcohol abuse. And in that study, he found that there was um, very, very little low rates of alcoholism um, when they were reared by non-alcoholic foster parents. So clearly, he reasoned that exposure to the alcoholic parents and lifestyle did just as much to increase the chances of, of the children becoming alcoholic than did the actual disease. But where did the exposure come from? How, how did it get to where it is? You have to look to the Europeans. Um, the tribe after tribe learned not only to drink, but how to drink from the, from the Europeans, whose bad manners and determination to get drunk and lack of restraint were notorious. And eventually, this you know, trapper style of you know, liquor consumption became incorporated into a few uh, Indian communities. There is an interesting book written called The Broken Cord um, by Michael Doris, I think is his name, um, about uh, fetal alcohol syndrome. And um, he talks about that, you know, drinking in unacceptable ways, he suggests, became one of the few possible forms of protest and ethnic uh, self-expression, you know, open to Indians 
during uh, generations of cultural repression. And he says, you know, quote, it, it was a means of refusing colonization, of affirming group identity, and of refusing compliance with intolerable laws. It also means uh, was a means of oblivion, a quest for an illusion of power, an escape from frustration and failure in an age when the customs, spiritual beliefs, and social conventions honed over thousands of years um, had suddenly become useless or, in some cases, illegal. But I'm not um, going to try to sit and you know shift responsibility for um, you know Indian countries' drinking problems um, onto the whites. You know, I mean that's you know we have to take some responsibility for that as well. But you know historically, um, you know these white traders and these um, you know uh, military officials and dignitaries. They knew, you know, that a drunk Indian is much easier to exploit than a than a sober one. And, you know, many Indians were, you know, kind of tricked out of uh, things um, simply by, you know, them being, you know, sort of fooled into thinking that that liquor is part of the act of negotiations. I'm going to just kind of wrap it up here because really you should just go back and listen to uh, part one of this podcast. But, um, you know, just to kind of get serious, you know, just some people think that, that Native Americans have this genetic predisposition to alcoholism. Um, but I want to just state, you know, fact is that uh, we also have a 60% to 70% unemployment rate on reservations and there's no relief in sight. Uh, a poor economy leads to alcoholism, and alcoholism leads to a poor economy. I mean, that's just facts. It's also self-esteem. You know, Native American men uh, used to be warriors and providers, and once that was sort of stripped away from us, um, you know, uh, we're educated to accept uh, immunities and com- commodities from the government. You know, alcoholism kind of snuck in there and becomes prevalent. Um, so... The film opens at night with these establishing shots of like creeks and dead trees and wildlife in the woods and hoot owls and farmhouses and homesteads. Um, Outside, we hear the drunken whoops of a man um, and he's begging the occupants of the house to come on out and have a drink with me. And that's the clip that I played uh, at the beginning of part one. Uh, there's this man and there's a woman in the house, husband and wife, and the, the wife tells the husband, hey, that old fool fish hawk is, is drunk in our field again. You need to go shoo him away. Uh, the man, you know, kind of rolls over and he, you know, just kind of tells her, ah, oh, fish hawk, that's just fish hawk. He's, he means no harm. Just go back to sleep and he'll pass out, you know, sooner or later. But the woman's not accepting that as an answer, nor would I believe that any woman uh, would, would uh, accept that as an answer. Uh, the man in the house gets out of the bed. His name is Doot, and he's in his long johns, and he's got this felt-brimmed hat, and he's got these big floppy work boots, and uh, he grabs his lantern and a shotgun, and he heads out the door. It reminds me of like one of those... Uh, characters that you see walking the streets in uh silver dollar city if anybody's ever been to branson but we see this uh drunken man um staggering just outside the tree line and he's sort of wildly like swinging his arms in the air um and he's again he's he's hollering out you know come on out have a drink with me have a drink with me and uh the commo all this commotion that's going on outside has awakened this little uh toe-headed young boy from his bed 
and he rolls over and he looks out the window to kind of see what's going on. Uh, the pajama clad man um, kind of looks back in the house uh, and he, you know, fires this warning shot into the air. And he kind of does that, you know, just to see if, you know, is anybody looking? I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. But there's uh, even the warning shot doesn't do anything to procure the, the drunken man. Uh, he continues his, you know, good natured pleading. And uh, the farmer acts like uh, he's ready to go off with the fish hawk. You know, he's like, ah, you know, having a drink with you uh, sounds pretty good, you know. But he finally tells him, come on, fish hawk. You know what Sarah's like. I can't. And uh, the fish hawk, now we kind of see him uh, for the first time. He's dressed in denim. He's got this uh, woolen, you know, blanket kind of wrapped around him. And he finally gives up and he sort of staggers back into the trees. And the old man, uh, Doot, the, the pajama clad man, he's kind of smiling and he's telling fish hawk, I appreciate it, fish hawk. Thank you. And, uh, you know, you, you get the feeling in this scene that they're friends, you know, that the man's not mad at him, that he just, he's expected that's what Fishhawk does, you know, it's, it's who he is. So he's not upset with him, and this certainly isn't the first time it's happened. And then the camera kind of pulls back into the house, and, and there's that young boy again, and he's kind of admiringly, or admirably, uh, looking out the window, and he's staring at this whole, you know, scene taking place. And he gives us this narration. Looking back, I can see Fishhawk as clearly as if it were yesterday. To the folks around Ben's Ford where I grew up, he was known as a part-time hunter and a full-time drunkard. But to me, he became, for a time that was all too short, the deepest of friends. Not heartwarming. Doesn't that make you want to just, you know, load up your your portly wife and your youngins and head on down to the general store and get you some hard candy and a, a bowl of butterscotch? That uh, sounds like a, a Bluebell ice cream commercial. But in that clip, uh, you can hear Corby calls him a hunter. But according to the novel, Fishhawk is a lot more than that. He's actually like the, the town veterinarian, and in some cases, he's the town doctor. Um, and this is really isn't explored much in the movie. Uh, the book describes him more as kind of like this magical uh, Dr. Doolittle uh, who has this real deep connection with animals. And it's sort of why the town puts up with his shenanigans, um, his drunken shenanigans. The film begins uh, right where the book begins, and Fishhawk is sort of stumbling into Bent's Ford, this little town, and he's looking for a man named Joke uh, Bryant, and he, uh, uh, I'm assuming, is his like regular drinking buddy. Well, he founds he finds Joke outside this boarding house, and they're all kind of at this saloon table, I guess, and he's gabbing with a couple of other gentlemen. And we can hear the men kind of shooting the bull, and one of them dang near jumps out of his uh, his seat uh, by the whooping of Fishhawk. And they call, kind of gather and crowd around the banister to see uh, what's going on. And here comes, you know, smiling, laughing Fishhawk, and he's just you know, walking down the dirt road, just living it up. And uh, by golly, a real live Indian, one of them hollers out. 
And Joke appears, and he kind of asks Fishhawk, you know, what are you out doing tonight? And, you know, uh, Fishhawk just sort of remorsefully answers, uh, looking for a drinking partners. Well, one of the younger men is not going to turn down an opportunity to have a drink with a real live Indian. And uh, Fishhawk kind of replies, ah, oh, you must be new around here. You know, most people would rather cozy up to a skunk than have a drink with me. And uh, Fishhawk kind of walks around. He sets on the front steps, and he pulls a bottle out of his blanketed arm. And, and Joke asks him, you know, have you finished that you know, bottle tonight? And Fishhawk kind of sadly explains to him, you know, uh, yeah, I did a job earlier, um, but they always pay me in whiskey. Nobody ever pays me in cash anymore. And it's at this point the young man um, who wants to drink with Fishhawk offers him money to uh, perform a real live Indian dance. I'll pay cash money. She'll do us a real Indian dance. I've never seen one. I got four bits here says you can't show us a genuine Indian dance. Four bits will get you drunker in a coop tomorrow. I guess we shouldn't expect anything less than from the director or excuse me the writer of a little house on the prairie but it's one of those scenes i think you know is not as demeaning when you read it in a book but when you're actually seeing it on screen it was one of the very first times uh in this film that i just i groaned out loud and i just cringed um through that whole scene i mean even just watching will sampson sort of give this half-hearted attempt at, you know, what the men were asking for. Um, you know, it's just, a, it's a, it's a really vulgar display. Um, and I could not wait for that scene to end. But, uh, anyway, Joke's wife, you know, comes out, uh, to see what all's going on out there and she puts an immediate stop to it. And she tells the men, you know, you guys should be ashamed of yourselves. And she tells Fishhawk to, you know, stop acting like a fool, you know, be a man. And Fishhawk, you know, kind of sheepishly, kind of like a little kid would, you know, apologizes. And then he just sort of passes out face first uh, in the bushes. <laughs> the next morning, we get uh, this lighthearted nature film montage of this black bear in a forest. And there's this wild hog snorting around. And uh, we get the introduction um, to little Corby Boggs. He's looking oh so dandy and cute. He's he's dressed up like a like an Indian. He's got the the you know headband on with the single feather in the back, and he's got this little homemade toy bow and arrow, and he's chasing around this rabbit, and he uh, kind of makes a bead on this rabbit, and he knocks an arrow, and he pulls back on the bow, and you know he's getting ready to you know send one flying. And uh, he misses. He misses the rabbit, and he ends up, you know, chasing it around these little cornstalk bundles, and you know, just really lighthearted uh, farm life. But the rabbit makes a beeline for the trees, and it runs right into that boar, and the boar is sl like slurping up these grubs in a rotted tree. 
then the bear that we saw um, is also in view, and the bear and the rabbit and the boar all kind of come head to head in some type of uh, animalistic uh, Mexican standoff. Uh, I'm not sure we're actually supposed to say that anymore, but it's some sort of standoff, animalistic standoff. Well, the book uh, goes into this really intense graphic battle between the hog and the bear. And it ends with the hog sort of running its tusk uh, through the roof of the bear's mouth and penetrating the eye before snapping off the tusk. But in this film, the boar and the bear uh, just kind of tussle about uh, in between shots of uh, fur and uh, growling and this 80-yard you know, pig squealing, uh, not hearing any of the commotion at all. Um, Corby runs directly into the line of battle, and he stops nearly dead in his tracks as he comes, you know, button nose to black muzzle with this gigantic black bear. And the bear, you know, re, you know rears back on its haunches and, uh, you know, growls really big. And, you know, Corby drops a deuce in his overalls and turns tail and, you know, runs back to the farm hollering for his paw. Yeah, uh, paw, paw, there's a bear, there's a bear. And paw uh, tells Corby, uh, there's only one person to call in this situation, and that is the fish hawk, eh? Where is the fish hawk, you may be wondering? Well, he's laid up in the town jailhouse, and he's nursing a pretty bad hangover, of course. Uh, the marshal uh, starts in on fish hawk as soon as he rolls over in his bunk. Boy, you stink. Like sour mash in the sun. Drunk yourself stupid again last night. You know how many times this makes I had to pack you in? Can't say they kept track, Billy. Yeah, I reckon it's true. Bad Indians drinking. Well, how many Indians you know, Billy? You're it, and that's plenty. <laughs> yeah, I know that seems like he's being hard on Fishhawk, but really he's not. Um, it's really played as they're, they're friends, that they've been friends for a long time. And, um, you know, there's this really wonderful moment in the book where Furman, you know, asks him if he wants a little coffee. And he's sort of using that as an excuse to get him to, to go out to the barn to, to look at his ailing dogs. Um, we get the notion, you know, that Fishhawk is not only the town's vet, um, that he's also the doctor. And it goes into great detail about his skills working with animals. And, you know, it says that uh, this is how he kind of paid small debts or apologized to the community for being a drunk fool. And uh, gives several examples of the miracles uh, that Fishhawk has performed in town concerning, you know, sick or hurt livestock. That he's sort of like this miracle worker uh, when it comes to animals. So the idea that the town relies on Fishhawk um, despite his demons, um, he's sort of uh, a semi-respected man in the community. And it also kind of explains a little bit about why Joke's wife was embarrassed for him, you know, the night before. And I wish the film had given um, a little bit more uh, dignity to the man because I feel that it needed it. But sadly, I guess for a TV movie, it just doesn't have the, the budget or the time to really go into to details like that. But uh, through this conversation, we get a little bit of exposition 
about Fish Hawk and um, him being raised by white people and that his father was shot by soldiers. Some people are fools. Some Indians drink. You just have to know a fool Indian that drinks. I guess it didn't do mighty good you being reared by white folks. Not as much good as having my pa shot by white soldiers. I'm not sure really why the importance of that line there, because that's pretty much all they have to say about it. Um, but in the book, we learn a lot more about uh, his former life. We talk, it, it talks about when Fishhawk was eight years old that there were soldiers that came into the camp, and they claimed that one of the natives had uh, killed a soldier. And his father knew it was true because the day before, one of the natives lit out for the woods. And his father was a very trustworthy man, and he sort of offered to stand in until the other man showed up for trial. The problem was, though, is that the man never showed up, and it was sort of thought that maybe he was shot and killed, or maybe a bear got him or something. But either way, the man never showed up. So um, Fishhawk's father agreed that he would give himself and his son over to authorities. And the story goes that the town folks were pretty upset about um, the death of the soldier because the soldier had had a wife and five kids. And they were wanting, you know, revenge. So they pulled the fishhawk and his dad out of jail, and they just shot shot his dad right there in cold blood. And it was decided that young fishhawk would kind of go to live with a man by the name of Sergeant Parsons. And Sergeant Parsons had other children. And fishhawk was, you know, forced to attend school with them. That he was sort of stripped of his traditional clothing. He was made to wear. Uh, clothes of the white man. Um, they said that his hair was the only thing that he was allowed to keep, um, but he couldn't grow it any more than the day they adopted him. They had to kind of sort of keep it the same length. Um, his father told him that, you know, before he died, that um, he needed to stay with the white man, and he started calling Sergeant, I, uh, Sergeant uh, Parsons heavy eyebrows. And he said he was to stay with him because he, uh, Fishhawk, needed to learn his language, his tools, and his ways. And his father told him that um, when he was old enough, he needed to go back uh, and share with the Osage what he had learned so that the Osage may um, continue to survive and live amongst the white people uh, in peace. Uh, So when he was finally old enough to return to his people, um, they weren't there anymore. And uh, he had learned that they um, had been moved to Oklahoma on the uh, Trail of Tears. So he sort of just starts walking towards Oklahoma, uh, and he says in the book, he stopped when the lush woods turned to flat, dry prairie. He decided then that there wasn't much, uh, that this wasn't the land of his people. There wasn't anything there but rolling prairie and stinking, muddy rivers. So he returned uh, to the lush forest and the cool silence where the deer hid and did what he knew best, animals. So his people were gone, and he was left alone. Um, He could read and write, and he could think in terms of measurement and weight. And so, like I said, he sort of began doctoring uh, animals in town. So that, I don't know why they just sort of dropped the, uh, uh, my paw was shot by soldiers, because there's a lot more to that story that I feel needed to be told. But uh, Fishhawk, you know, walks into town and as, as soon as he sprung and he's kind of sitting on this fallen tree. I'm um, watching the church let out across the road and he's a, approached by what I swear upon first viewing. I thought it was a really young uh, Dave Coulier, uh, Uncle Joey from Full House. Uh, this acting by this guy is a real piece of work. I said work. I said work. Um, it really can only be seen to be believed because it is unintentionally hilarious. 
Um, I watched it like at least five times, and I each time just elicited a really hard, hearty belly laugh for me. My wife even came out at one point and told me to quiet down. But it is such a good rib tickling scene. Uh, this town idiot, I'm just going to call him an idiot because that's what he, he is, uh, is supposed to be playing. Uh, you know, I shouldn't probably laugh at this, but he's supposed to be playing a mentally challenged person. But he doesn't come off that way because it's so overacted. But he comes up stupidly, like galloping along uh, to Fishhawk, and he's looking all over left and right, and he's kind of reminds me of that that scene in Menace to Society, you know, when that girl's cousin is going to go shoot Kane, and at the end, and he sort of walks out, and you know, exaggeratingly like looks both ways while trying to sneak. It's like that, only instead of uh, you know black '90s uh, dressed crip from South Central, it's just this white guy in his 30s with this really hard cut chili bowl haircut and he's got black dirty overalls on and he's got this oversized button up shirt you know it's buttoned up to the neck and he's got these floppy brown shoes and he's carrying a gunny sack of bottles like I'm telling you the the imagery I, I can't even begin to paint with the with the proper brush um you know I used to be a director for a summer camp I'm gonna go off on a uh tangent here for a second uh, I used to be a director of a summer camp for kids and young adults with special needs and you know I did that for probably about 10 plus years and I, I can promise you nobody acts like that um, of course they do communicate uh, and act a little different sure but uh, you know my 10 plus years of experiences uh, dealing with with people um, with autism and, and downs and, and you know other you know ment- mentally um issues uh i've never come across anybody that that uh was portrayed that way so um you know when i see special needs people being portrayed like spoiled children you know it's it's not a true life depiction and um this guy is more a buffoon than anything else but i digress um the dimwit's name is tosack charlie and he's aptly named because he carries a tosack full of bottles that kind of clang around um, every time he moves and you get zero backstory on this guy and because of that it makes him kind of difficult to like right off the bat uh, in the book, you know, he tells Fishhawk um, how alike they are and that they are the last of their kind. And for Fishhawk, it's Osage. And for Charlie, it's family. And it seems that his family had settled into the area when Charlie was just a baby. Uh, then the sickness came and, and it hit and uh, claimed the life of his mother and his father being left with the prospect of raising a son that he was embarrassed of uh, sort of gives Charlie uh you know, kind of gives Charlie the old, I'm going out for a pack of smokes routine. Uh, and he leaves him in the barn to sort of fend for himself. And ever since then that the town kind of collectively raises Charlie and they kind of give him odd jobs. And, um, he also tells Fishhawk that he's scared to death of dying and that he has secretly $150 buried in Joe Bryant's barn. And he tells Fishhawk that when he dies, uh, to make sure to throw him the biggest funeral party the town has ever seen. Um, apparently, this is sort of like his big final F you to the town, you know, just to let him know that he died a very rich man, you know. Um, but he didn't want to be forgotten, so to speak. But anyway, um, it's also through this conversation in the book that we get a little bit more of Fishhawk's backstory. 
And like I said, I wish the, f the film explores none of this, and I feel it's really crucial information needed to help explain the actions of Fishhawk much later in the film. Because all we get here is uh, Charlie spitefully calling Fishhawk a drunk engine for not getting him a bottle out of some window. Ain't it all greeny? It's all greeny, Charlie. Mm -hmm. I seen me a real pretty bottle in Mr. Trevelyan's window. Well, can you get it for me, Fishhawk? You know I can't do that. I told you that before, Charlie. Well... If it had whiskey in it, you would. What a dick. All right. Well, next we get... Um, he's really not, though. It just kind of comes across that way. But anyway, uh, we get this uh, hilarious uh, introduction to a character that I absolutely uh, love named Marcus Boggs. And he's the, the dad of Dute. And he walks up with Marshall Furman. And this guy plays the best drunk out of the entire cast. Uh, this guy sounds like Boomhauer from King of the Hill. I mean, it took me a couple of rewinds uh, to catch what he says to Fishhawk. Let's see if you can understand him. Hey, you shut your face, Billy Furman. I've got a proposition for the Fishhawk. Yeah, my nephew Duke, two years rode over this morning and uh, told me to find you. Who just where to find him, too? Yeah. Dude needs you. There's a bear bunted his stock. What does a dude need me for? He's got dogs and a meddling nose for bear himself. Well, this ain't no ordinary bear, you say. Dude say that uh, he heard him moaning and groaning this morning and just before sun up, then he found he'd, he'd kill one of his shoots and drug it half a mile. That ain't only the guts, and that ain't natural. Try tracking? Oh, yeah, one of Duke's dogs got on the track and got swatted dead for his trouble. Well, uh, how much will you give me for killing the bear? Well, uh, my nephew's not one for penny pension. I reckon they'd uh, give you all the meat and the hide and all the bear oil and, and throw in a gallon of whiskey and two dollars cash money. Did you get any of that at all? If you could make it out, basically what he told uh, Fishhawk was that his nephew, Dute, is having trouble with the bear uh, around his property. And it seems it took out a couple of shoats, which is a sheep and a goat hybrid. Actually, I'd look that up because I didn't know what that was. And a hunting dog. And he tells Fishhawk that um, he can bring in the bear. There's meat, there's bear hide, there's bear oil, a gallon of whiskey, and $2 if he wants to do it. Marshall Furman kind of steps in and says five dollars, but just the prospect of seeing of uh, somebody paying him cash for a job is enough for Fishhawk to accept the terms. And as the men finish up and say their goodbyes, Tosak randomly, for no reason, says this. Well, bye there, Marcus, you old son of a bitch. <laughs> How's that for a slice of fried gold? Uh, as Fishhawk. Um, Heads out to Duke Boggs's place. Uh, Charlie walks with him, and we kind of get uh, a Reader's Digest version of his backstory. You scared to die, Fishhawk? Well, I don't exactly crave it. Well, I'm scared most of the time. I, I got dreams about dying and nobody to care and, and no roof over my head and, and maybe it's raining real fierce, you know, and... Uh, well, I purely dread to die out in the weather. Seems to me you were before your time, Charlie. Mm. 
I may be twice your years and you don't see me worrying. Well, that's because you don't want for nothing. Except for folks to leave you alone. Never know nobody yet who did along for something. Oh, you're longing for your woman and your boy, ain't you? They've been gone a long time. And longing ain't gonna bring them back. How'd they die, Fishhawk? Smallpox. And no doctoring. So at this point, uh, Charlie kind of goes into the, the details about how he's scared to die and that he doesn't want to be, he wasn't, doesn't want to die alone, basically, is uh, what he tells him. And he asks Fishhawk, you know, um, something should happen to me, uh, which is foreshadowing in the film, obviously. Uh, will you please take care of me? You know, get me a doctor. I want the finest casket. I want the finest party the, sound, uh, the town's ever seen. To which Fishhawk agrees, and they kind of shake hands on it. So, um, before heading out to, to get the bear, uh, Fishhawk uh, stops by his place to pick up uh, the only family member that he's got left, his his old dog, Ebo. Uh, he's a plot hound in, in the book, and we get this really touching moment between uh, Samson and his dog. Um, he kind of goes inside to this little lean-to smoke shack-looking thing, and he gets all of his hunting stuff, and uh, he's sort of getting ready to go out, and he kind of stops, and he looks at this picture, and it's a picture of his deceased wife and his son, and this is at the moment where Samson really shines. I mean, there's probably like three or four minutes uh, during this, this scene, and there's not one word spoken, but Samson just has the ability to to pull that off, Um He's able to just portray everything uh, that he's feeling, and he doesn't even have to say a word as he's kind of reminiscing about times past. Uh, I mean, you get the feeling, you know, that had his family lived, you know, Fishhawk's life would have been very different. And it's just amazing what uh, Samson can do with just a simple look and a prop. Uh, it's just a really, really stellar acting moment. And as he leaves... Uh, he goes outside and he stops and he kneels down next to this little small burial house uh, of his wife and his son. And again, it's just such a really heart-tugging scene because it really truly conveys, um, you know, how alone and how disconnected uh, Fishhawk has become um, in life. Fishhawk isn't on the trail uh, very long when he and the bear uh, cross paths and... Um, Fishhawk is in the perfect position and has the perfect advantage for the kill shot. And as he's drawing up his rifle, um, it misfires and it allows the bear to escape. And uh, Fishhawk checks the rifle and he realizes that the cartridge is bad. So he kind of just grunts and he you know, ejects the cartridge. But for some reason, he puts it back in his pocket. I don't really know why. And then the bear runs across the horizon and just as he does so, we hear the sounds of a child's voice in the background. And Fishhawk turns around only to be greeted by little old Corby Boggs walking along the trail. And he's carrying a whole mess of fish. And the kid's about seven, probably eight years old. And as soon as uh, he sees Fishhawk, uh, his face immediately lights up. And we get a little character relationship building scene here as Corby leads the way home. <laughs> You're coming to kill that old bear, right? Almost did just now. I scared him? Well, 
It wouldn't have made any difference anyhow. The cartridge was dead. Might as well save the powder, though. My powder would take common to me scaring that old bear away. Don't see no need to mention it. I can show you a short way to our place. Well, I gotta get my dog. That seems to be the general's opinion. My potage won't hardly scratch your ass you don't have a drink. sweet touching little moment that little kid uh, poking fun at uh, Fishhawk's drinking problem uh, in the book it's a lot different uh, in the book Corby is not this annoying little kid he's about 12 years old and he's at the prime age where boys began looking for role models and you know living where he lives and his family being who it, who it is he doesn't really have a lot of those I mean his dad is kind of like this inept farmer and his uncle is uh the town moonshiner and also a drunk and uh so he doesn't really have a lot of of role models to kind of show him the ways and so he sort of looks to to fish hawk more as like i said like a a mentor uh, a hunting mentor or a guide mentor or just a uh you know fish hawk knows everything about everything and um he kind of teaches corby along the way But full disclosure, in the book, his relationship with Corby is not that big a part of the book. And we'll kind of, you know, keep going with that as we move along with the story. But the two buddies uh, walk walk up to find Dute Boggs um, kicking his plow and with his boot heel. And he tells Dute um, that he saw the bear, Fishhawk does. And true to his word, uh, he doesn't snitch on Corby, uh, further solidifying his trust. He says that the bear is about halfway to Arkansas by now and uh, that they might as well just sort of bed down for the night and have a good supper, maybe get a drink going before uh, they set out again. And I just kind of love the fact that, you know, Dute uh, has to sneak his drinking around his wife. And we definitely know uh, who's running the household on, uh, on the Dute farm or the Boggs farm, I mean. Later that night, uh, Fishhawk, uh, who's bedded down in the barn, he's sort of just drinking a cup of coffee, and he's kind of minding his own business. He's kind of sitting with Ebo and, you know, just kind of enjoying a quiet moment. And um, Corby drops down out of the loft, and he asks Fishhawk about his son. And Pa says you had a small boy like me once, but he died from smallpox. Just about your age when it happened. No, sorry. There's no need. It happened a long time ago. A long time ago. Well, at least he was lucky to have an Indian as a father. My pa's just a farmer. Wow, Corby. So within uh, 12 hours, you've uh, poked fun at his drinking and you're bringing up uh, his deceased son. Uh, What are you going to do next? Uh, Pour sugar in his gas tank while simultaneously putting bamboo shoots under his fingernails? Uh, My favorite part, though, of this clip is uh, Fishhawk 
uh, does not correct him when Corby says, you know, your son was lucky to have an Indian for a father. Uh, my pa is just a farmer. Uh, Fishhawk just kind of looks at him. He's like, yep, that's right. He's, he's just a farmer with no culture. But uh, the scene goes on a little longer, and Fishhawk begins, you know, regaling this, this story to Corby about the very first bear that he ever killed and how he took the claws to make a necklace. Corby's face just lights up when he, when Fishhawk tells this story. And uh, long story short, he ends up giving Corby the claw necklace. And just as Corby puts it around his neck, um, they're interrupted by the missus of the house, Sarah. And she's up there not only to fetch Corby, but also to kind of check on Fishhawk. And you get the feeling that she does care about his well-being, even if she is kind of hard on him. Um, it's just kind of the, the old tough love routine. And this is where there's a kind of a distinction between the character that she portrays in the book versus the movie. Uh, in the book, uh, she is sort of a hard-nosed, no-nonsense woman, but she's also um, concerned for her kids because uh, there's more than one kid. And it's not that she doesn't like Fishhawk. It's more um, that she's just concerned uh, with his drinking around the children. And uh, But in the book, like I said, she's very motherly to Fishhawk. And... Um, uh, and here, it's just sort of portrayed that she's really hard on him, but he sort of wins her over at the end. Well, the very next thing that we see after that um, kind of cuts to later in the night is Fishhawk and Doot. And they're both bombed out of their gourds, and they're singing, and they're drinking, and they're cutting up. And the conversation sort of goes into this weird place um, about Doot's wife that you, you really have to hear. You can go, believe them, them. You can go, oh, but I can't Get it right pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, all right. Oh, this will make it right. <laughs> you know, Miss Boggs, she's a good woman. If you don't mind a comp compliment, you know. Oh, oh I don't mind at all. Seven. <laughs> She never smiles too much. Well, when she's sour, she's sour. But when she's sweet, oh boy, is she sweet. Yeah, that's not the creepiest line uh, in the entire film. I don't know what is. But anyway, uh, you get this feeling, though, that you know when Fishhawk's talking about uh, Mrs. Boggs, he's being very sincere. Uh, meanwhile, dude sort of makes that questionable innuendo. Uh, I don't even know if Fishhawk knows how to take that. But anyway, um, after the party is broken up by uh, Sarah, Fishhawk and Dude make plans, like, we're going to get that bear first break of light. Well, the next morning, um, Fishhawk is sort of rustled awake by Corby with news that he saw the bear. And Fishhawk um, jolts awake, and he's ready to go. Um, he's obviously still intoxicated. He grabs his rifle, he's got Ebo, and he, you know, forgot that he's on the second floor of the barn, and he kind of runs right out the loft, uh, landing in some hay below. Uh, he runs over, though, and he's, we see Dude, and he's kind of kneeling over this dead calf. Uh, it's also obviously a victim of the bear. Uh, Dude and Fishhawk start running cool water over their heads, you know, trying to sober up, and Corby's, you know, begging him the whole entire time if he can he come along. And, of course, you kind of know where this is headed. 
But Fishhawk uh, incoherently mumbles something about where he might know where the bear is, uh, might be positioned, and he kind of takes off saying, you know, meet me there. He's kind of stumbling around the woods, and he's clammy, and he's struggling to breathe, and he's trying desperately to just will himself sober. Uh, Ebo even stops dead on uh, his tracks to check on Fishhawk. And it's really described in the book, you know, um, him trying to get his wits about him again. And he's struggling uh, in this moment to, to, you know, shake out the cobwebs. But Duke, meanwhile, has his dogs leashed uh, and they're on the hunt and they're coming up from the opposite side at the same time that Fishhawk is dunking his head in a creek. The rush of cold water, you know, kind of jolts Fishhawk awake and, and uh, he continues on with Ebo leading the charge. They come upon the bear den, and we can hear Dude and his dogs leading the bear right to him. And Fishhawk positions himself in the perfect spot, and he's just waiting. But the effects of the previous night still has not let loose of him. And as he's waiting for the bear, uh, he slowly kind of starts falling asleep and, you know, kind of nodding off and then uh, just passes smooth out, kind of leaning up against this little sapling. With Fishhawk, you know, passed out now, Ebo breaks free and he starts heading right for the bear who is now in clear sights. Fishhawk, that kind of, that commotion wakes him up and he realizes what's going on and he tries to get to his feet, but he's just unable to, he's just still drunk. And Ebo and the bear are now in this like face to face, uh, ready to rumble uh, stance. And Dute comes up uh, over the hillside with his pack of hounds and he's sort of watching this standoff take place. Uh, he's muttering to his mutts and kind of smiling like, yeah, Fishhawk's got this one. Uh, I have no idea uh, who did all the animal wrangling on this picture, but they had a big pair of brass ones. Because this dog and this bear are literally going after it. Uh, I mean, Ebo goes right after the bear and he bites it square on the face. And... Uh, it made me cringe a couple of times because the bear bats this dog away like a fly. I mean, it just goes tumbling over. Um, you know, Fishhawk has got his rifle, you know, drawn and uh, with his blurry vision, and he just can't make a get a good, you know, clear shot. Fishhawk pleads with Ebo, "Get out of the way! Get out of the way!" So he can take his shot. Uh, finally, the dog obeys him, and he's trying to make it back to Fishhawk. And this bear, this bear is just like in hot pursuit. Uh, the fishhawk closes his eyes and, you know, uh, just pulls the trigger. And then, you know, all is silent. And it's like the perfect shot. Uh, the bear is killed instantly. Unfortunately, though, um, when he toppled, he fell on top of Ebo, uh, crushing him. And fishhawk's desperately trying to lift the bear off the dog, but he just can't. It's too heavy. Uh, Dude even rushes in to help, and they're unable to lift the bear off of Ebo, and he's sadly killed. Uh, and finally, though, um, you know they're able to kind of get the, you know, the bear lifted up enough to where they can pull the dog out from underneath this giant, you know, behemoth. And the fish hawk is just racked with guilt, and he's just—you can tell in his face, like again, this is Samson's shining moment. He just—he's crushed. And he carries the limp dog away to bury it. Dude offers, you know, Fishhawk help, you know, burying the dog. But Fishhawk says, you know, this is my dog. I'm going to, I'll do it. So he goes back to the farm and he kind of tells the family what happened. Well, of course, Corby is more concerned about the whereabouts of Fishhawk. 
and dude explains that the bear killed Ebo, and Fishhawk is off burying him somewhere, and Sarah uh, even looks distraught uh, at this news, and Corby says what everyone is thinking. Ebo was all he had. Corby? Corby? I don't want you to think I ain't sorry about Fishhawk's dog. Fishhawk, meanwhile, is back at the smokehouse, and he's mourning the loss of the very last uh, member of his family, Ebo. And again, Samson is just perfect here. Uh, you just really feel his pain. You really feel his anguish um, just through his actions and just by the look on his face. He has just the best look. But uh, he's knelt down by the grave, and he's kind of you know mourning the loss, and he places Ebo's collar and braided leash on the burial mound. And then he kind of just takes a long walk. He finds himself back at the Boggs' place, and everyone's kind of busying themselves, gutting and processing the bear. Dute uh, thinks that it would be a good idea for the family to put Fishhawk up for the winter. Uh, he feels um, you know, that he's partly responsible for the death of Ebo, and he says he kind of owes it to Fishhawk. Well, Sarah has second thoughts. She just doesn't really want Corby being around uh, a drunkard. But Dude responds, you know, no matter what he is, uh, at the core, Fishhawk is a man, and all men deserve compassion. Well, she can't very well argue with that. Um, and she, you know, begrudgingly allows uh, Fishhawk to stay. In the meantime, uh, old drunken Marcus Boggs, uh, he calls Fishhawk over to the bear meat pile. Uh, it seems that he found something rather suspicious uh, lodged in the bear's jawbone. And without hesitation, Fishhawk declares, it's a boar's tusk. Hey, Fishhawk, come on over here, will you? Take a look at this. Marcus said he found it in the jawbone of that old bear. That's a boar's tusk. Must have run up on the big hog in the woods. I wonder how he could chew on anything with that in his mouth. Couldn't. Without hurting. I guess that's why he turned rogue. Yeah. I've never seen a hog with a tusk that big. It ain't natural. Yeah, I recall hearing about uh, wild boars uh, running around in the woods when I was a boy. The old Uncle Ben Thrakeel, he said as this uh, rich geezer who imported them from Russia for uh, for hunting purposes and uh, and uh, went off from with spears. It was spears. Ben Thrakeel's been dead and buried 30 years. Yeah, if you could make that out, um, you heard that right. Uh, Marcus said that he had heard stories of this highfalutin farmer that had been importing these wild boars from Russia. Um, but he says that was over 30 years ago, and there shouldn't be any left alive. In the book, the scene is handled just a little bit differently. Um, it takes place more towards the end of uh, of the fall, and uh, all the men are kind of sitting around, uh, you know, swapping uh, hunting stories. And it's uh, Marshall Furman um, that shares the story about, you know, uh, have you guys ever heard about these wild hogs that roam these woods? Um, so it sort of starts out like a, a myth, and then it just sort of gets compiled onto. And before you know it, um, it is decided that they're going to go out and try to find this, you know, so-called uh, mythical hog. For the movie, you know, just to kind of push the plot along, they just kind of 
give it to Marcus uh, as this exponential dialogue just to kind of push the story forward. But it's at this point, too, after uh, they're, they're kind of done, that Marcus pulls a bottle out of his pocket and he offers Fishhawk a drink. And to the amazement of the crowd, he politely declines. He says, you know, like, I'm done with all that nonsense and that if you're not listening, um, I'll split your crawl and stick your leg through it. And that is a direct line of dialogue from the book. Yeah, have yourself a drink there, Mark. Yeah, oh, I'm going to do that. Hey, hey, uh, Fishhawk, uh, watch your whistle. No, thank you, Marcus. Oh, you're tearing the quick water in your old age? <laughs> no, I just don't seem to favor whiskey no more. You should try that, too, sometimes, Marcus. Give me a diamond, Fishhawk. I offer a man a drink, he takes it. You leave me be, Marcus, or I'll split your craw and stick your leg through it. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I tell you what, he's serious when he says it. Because uh, Marcus quickly backs down, and um, like I said, uh, the entire crew, Charlie, uh, uh, Dude, Sarah, and even Corby, they're really impressed by that revelation. They sort of, you know, smile and nod approvingly. Uh, Marcus is kind of miffed, though, and he kind of objects to, he says, you know, like, you don't let Indians speak to me that way? But Dute uh, walks right over and again puts Marcus in his place, and he's kind of like, uh, well, he just did. <laughs> uh, but he also tells Marcus, you know, like, he, he's basically lost everyone that he's loved, and you better leave him alone. Well, uh, Corby kind of goes over and consoles uh, uh, the shaken fishhawk. As he's walking up to just kind of see what Fishhawk is doing, um, you know, Fishhawk's knelt over and he's sort of ailing this pregnant dog. He's, you know, gently petting her on the head and the dog's tail is, you know, just thumping. And, and uh, Fishhawk asks Corby, he's like, you know, what do you want? <laughs> but he never makes eye contact. And uh, Corby kind of gives him the old, uh, I'm sorry for your loss routine. And uh, Fishhawk replies, well, he's dead because I was drunk. He didn't mean for it to happen. Lots of folks do things they don't mean, Corby. But that still don't mean it don't hurt. Sal's gonna have pups real soon. And I'll bet they'll look just like Ebo. What you get here is a pretty condensed version um, of what happens. See, in the book... Um, Fishhawk kind of explains that to Corby um, and he's kind of having this conversation with Corby but you really kind of get the feeling that he's actually talking to Ebo. To quote the book it says something like um, I wasn't much of a master but he loved me anyways. It seemed like uh, all men kill, kill their friends one way or the other and I sure enough killed him but I never meant to old dog. I got drunk, and I guess it ain't the first time that he knowed me to do that. The Osage always said a man got another chance, and if there's anything to that, I reckon I'll see him again. But if I don't, and if men who didn't deserve their dogs don't get to see them again, I want you to know that I did this. I killed that there bear, and I hope that I sent him to where you can chase him again, Ebo. And I'm going to do a couple more things you might like to know about. I've took my last drink of whiskey. I don't need it anymore because I'm going home. I'm going back to the place where my people lived. 
I just find that uh, exchange a little bit more powerful um, because he's uh, decided, you know, right then and there um, that it's time for him to go home. Uh, he doesn't really have much else to live for, uh, that um, he's going to give up drinking. He's uh, going to try to die with dignity. And um, like I said, it's, it's right then that he, he is where the story really starts to unfold. So the next scene takes place later that night, and everybody's in the kitchen. Um, you've got Dude, you've got Sarah, Corby, Marshall Furman, and Marcus, and they're all singing and, and uh, you know, having a good old time. And it's at that point where Corby asks uh, Dude if he knows any Indian songs, and uh, Marcus replies, um, there's no such thing as Indian songs. And... Uh, you know, Corby says, well, he corrects him and he says, you know, well, Fishhawk knows of some songs. And at that point, Sarah kind of chimes in and says, you know, um, I don't want him, you know, filling your head with any heathen ideas. And it's at that point, um, everybody stops and looks because standing in the doorway is Fishhawk. And Sarah's uh, looks really uneasy and she's sort of being caught at the, at the double speak. Dude tries his best to kind of break the tension and he offers him a seat with the rest of the drunken men. Uh, Fishhawk suspiciously, suspiciously kind of like walks around and he takes a seat and he and Dude start hammering out the details of this bear negotiation. Uh, Marcus kind of dickheadedly reminds him about the whiskey, um, which Fishhawk turns down. He said, um, you know, take your whiskey and, and sell it and um, I'd rather have the money. Uh, you know, basically I want my $2. <laughs> He then offers um, Sarah half the bear oil. And there's this part in the book about how prized bear oil is because it's so difficult thing to render. Um, it's a lot of hard work and it's messy and it really goes into full detail about the flavor that it gives food when you cook with it. And, you know, uh, some of the other advantages, like how long it burns um, if you're trying to use it for fuel. And um, here it just kind of sounds like this really barbaric way, just the way he throws it out there. And Sarah seems kind of surprised, but really, um, you know, touched at the offer. Um, and initially, she kind of turns it down. But um, Fishhawk insists, you know, he's like, you know, you're going to be putting me up for the winter, and I want to make sure um, I can repay you for that because, um, you know, I'm, I'm not here to earn free ride. Uh, plus, he's told her, you know, I'm going to give you an additional $2. And it's kind of at this point that Sarah starts to see Fishhawk uh, his kindness and she starts to see his you know his giving nature and that um she also kind of recognizes that uh he, you know material things don't really mean much to him uh but fishhawk tell tells the family that you know i'm going to be off to new parts soon and um dude offers the pick of the litter uh to fishhawk with the puppies that are coming and um of course that's too sweet a deal to turn down and it's also decided uh, then that nobody's going to be bothering Fishhawk about his drinking. Outside the party, um, through the window, uh, you hear these guttural groans and grunts of the old Russian hog. It seems word around the campfire is that somebody in the vicinity found his broken tusk. And he's out looking for revenge. He's snorting and chomping at the air with this really intense burning hatred because it is on. Next up, you get this little, um, you know, friendship montage uh, with Fishhawk and Corby. 
And one of the very first things that we see is Fishhawk um, taking some target practices. It's Fishhawk, and he's shooting these empty whiskey bottles. And even though it's not mentioned, I, I really got a you know I thought this was a pretty keen scene because. Um, you get that not only is Fishhawk starting to kind of get control of his life again, um, you know, uh, his hands aren't shaking and he's, you know, not, you know, clammy and sweaty looking anymore. Um, but he's also therapeutically destroying, you know, what once destroyed him. And I don't know um, if it was the filmmaker intended that, but um, it's just a really amazing, powerful scene that um, really kind of, you know, needed more, a little bit more substance to it. But before too long, old Corby wanders in to squeeze off a few rounds, and we get this, like I said, this character relationship bonding scene, and uh, I hate how they waste time on this, uh, because the movie's called Fishhawk, and so more Fishhawk, we want more Fishhawk. But we get another scene similar to this one, only this time Fishhawk is riding some kind of horse-driven farm thing with um, Corby walking along behind. And Sarah and Dude are kind of off in the distance, and they're observing, you know, the, the friendship beginning to blossom. And she calls the two besties in for lunch. And then we get some more shooting practice with Corby, and followed by the fish hawk kind of picking, uh, you know, petting his pup and picking him up. And he starts affectionately calling the little puppy the little Ebo. And um, as they're messing with the pups, um, Corby's uh, German shepherd, Shep, uh, sort of gets wind of something and just darts off, uh, jumps the, the fence and, you know, heads toward the tree line. Um, turns out he, he got a scent of that hog. And you think something's going to happen here that's bad, but it really doesn't. Because the next thing we see is Corby, and he's at the general store, and he's buying a book for Fishhawk. And it's a copy of The Last Mohican, Last of the Mohicans. And Corby asks Fishhawk, will you read this to me? And Hanuman spoke. I know that the pale faces are a proud and hungry race. I know they claim not only to, to have the earth, but that the meanest of their color is better than the wisest of the red man. But let them not boast before the face of the Manitou too loud. They entered the land at the rising of the sun and may yet go off at its setting. What's that mean, Fishhawk? It means, Corby, it means, it means that you and I will be friends, no matter what. You mean, even when white folks is mean to you, we could still be friends? Mm-hmm. I'd never say anything like that to you, Fishhawk. Never. Well, that was a long time, Corby. When you're older, you'll be able to better understand that. But Fishhawk, I'd never say anything like that. We're friends. That we are, Corby, that we are. You know what's going to happen, right? I mean, that is completely a setup for something that's going to happen later in the film. I mean, you can see that. That's a little foreshadowing. Well, I'm not going to spoil it for you yet. But uh, you definitely get the feeling in this scene that Fishhawk's kind of uncomfortable, um, that he doesn't really want to read that book. Uh, and you can also tell that he wanted to, to, to let Corby know that um, he's not going to be around much longer, that, he, that he's got to go, um, that he's got to go be with his people. Um, but he just doesn't do that. 
but this also, like I said, it sets up the betrayal because later in the movie, um, you'll see just how milky white Corby's little hide is, 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 you know, when he, when he's pushed to anger and frustration. The next morning, uh, Corby and Fishhawk, they're off to the next county to sell some green. That's what I thought he said. I thought that's what Dute says, which made me wonder just what kind of farm outfit is he running here? But anyway, they're off on this little horse-drawn wagon, and it's all loaded up. And you get this really quaint scene with Corby and Fishhawk just kind of shooting the breeze. I don't think so, Corby. You have to be born an Indian, just like you were born white. Not passage. You're as much white as you are Indian. Well, there's times when even I thought so, Corby. But lately, I don't think so anymore. little shit what a terrible thing to say i mean he basically called fishhawk a sellout i mean like it's his fault that he was raised by white people after his father was shot so instead of you know kind of putting him in his place and giving him a history lesson um fishhawk just kind of shakes it off and that's because uh the two of them come across tosak charlie and he's kind of got this sack on his head and he's kind of going trying to scare him uh, on the side of the road uh, he's wanting to tag along, and it's at this point that I hear Fishhawk call the stuff grain. And, um, you know, Fishhawk also, can, you can kind of tell, like, well, I don't really want you tagging along. We've got stuff to do. But Charlie's not going to take that for an answer. And he says, you know what, I'll tell you what, let's race. You know, you guys take the, the wagon, and I'll race you down to this old tree. And if I win, I get to go. Well, Fishhawk agrees, but only if he lets Corby kind of hold the reins. So they go off, and I mean, they start smoking Charlie. I mean, it is not even close. They are literally like streets ahead of him. But showing his heart, young Corby kind of starts to feel a little bad for Charlie because he's losing so bad. So he kind of pulls back on the reins, and he he lets him win. And it's funny because while Corby looks really pleased with himself, you know, Fishhawk just looks really frustrated and annoyed. Uh, Will Sampson, that, that, that man has a look. I mean, he can look. So uh, just the look on his face, you could just tell he kind of gives Corby the old WTF and Corby, uh, you know, shyly kind of says, well, I didn't want to spill the grain. But anyway, Charlie loads up in the back uh, and he almost immediately begins annoying everyone. Um, He just starts talking like uh, Bubba Gump does with shrimp when he's talking about bottles like there's blue ones and green ones and brown ones and, you know, just kind of going off down the road. Uh, so they get to the town and they sell the, the grain and they head back on the way home though, the trio stop and make camp for the night and they're sitting around this campfire and Corby's making uh fish hawk read last of the Mohicans again. And, uh, I don't know what it is with this book. Um, I've never read the book. I've tried, you know, full disclosure. I've tried to read it about three times. I can only get through the first probably three chapters and I just lose complete interest in it. But anyway, um, he's making Fishhawk read the book, and um, at that moment, Corby says this. But Hawkeye and Chingo. Chingatskook. They were friends, like me and you, so we can still go hunting and fishing together. Corby, 
There's something I've got to tell you. I'm going to be going away soon. I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I want to find my people. The Osage. Ouch. He basically just gave him the old, Corby, we got to talk speech, and he broke up with him. But you get the idea that Fishhawk um, is sort of a torn man. Um, you know, he wants to stay because that's all he's known. But also, uh, you know, he has to come to grips with just who he is um, inside and what his worth is. Uh, it's uh, kind of uh, confusing, um, the film versus the book. Um, and I think it has to do with age because in the book, um, Fishhawk is like 80 years old and he's nearing the end of his life. So when he talks about going back to find his people, what he's talking about is he, he's ready to die. I mean, he, he's basically lived the best life that he could live. He's made a lot of mistakes and the only way he can kind of redeem himself, uh, is to, to kind of go back and, and, and die where his people lived. And it's kind of a very powerful statement, and, and it's one that I think misses the mark in the film because Samson's only like, um, you know, probably late 40s when this this film came out. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for him to say, I want to go see my people because we already know his people are gone. That they're not even there anymore. But for here, I think he's, you know, it's he's trying to say it's time for me to stop feeling sorry for myself. And I, you know, I want to, I want to move out of this town and just start over. I want to go where people, um, you know, don't know my past um and he can kind of start over again back at the the boggs house um i guess it's the next day because we see a very teary-eyed corby and he's watching fishhawk sort of pack up all of his stuff um in the barn and you know he's uh you know just getting ready to, to leave and fishhawk realizes that he's being watched so he kind of looks over his shoulder and he sees corby and kind of gives him a reassuring smile just letting him know that it's going to be okay buddy but uh it doesn't really help also that it's the very first day of school and fishhawk promises corby like i'm not going to go anywhere until you get home because i want to make sure i tell you bye and um corby leaves for school well as they're kind of walking back um you know dude's saying i'm sure i'm going to miss you i mean you don't have to do this you know fishhawk you don't really have to go but fishhawk explains like yeah i kind of do I got a real need to find my own place now. Just don't see no use in reliving the way I've been. Only time I do anything is when somebody else needs it done. Does that make sense to you? Oh, yeah, seems clear enough. What you're saying is sometimes a man has to serve himself. I gotta do something now. I figured the only way I got to do that is to go back to where I started from. Yeah, I hope you understand that because he basically told you that um, he feels that people use him, that the only time that he's needed is when people want him to do something, that he's not really living life for himself, that he's kind of living for the town folk. And uh, surprisingly, though, you know, nobody tries to dissuade him from going. And, um, you know, you usually get this, this selfish need speech you know accompanied with misplaced hurt and frustration but instead everyone just kind of agrees that fishhawk has to do what's best for fishhawk and so um they just sort of say you know like we get it we get it
Next, we see old Tosak Charlie, and he's kind of scrounging for bottles um, inside this burned-out house. And he's busying himself, you know, looking through this amber glass. Um, and he's too busy to notice that big Russian hog staring him down like a giant soft white grub. And so by the time that Charlie realizes that that hog is, you know, is within tusking distance, it's just too late. Um, he tries to kind of outrun him, and uh, you get these... Uh, tracking shots of uh, probably the greatest human-slash-pig foot chase in cinematic history. Now, it's already been established that Charlie can run pretty fast, and you know he, he kind of showed that off when he uh, beat the horse-drawn carriage. And, um, you know, we've seen this pig stab a bear um, and run away, so that we also know that, um, you know, this, this cloven-hooved animal is pretty quick, too. But who's the quickest? Well, it's anybody's race. And the foot chase goes on for a full probably two minutes, you know, back and forth, back and forth, before Charlie kind of turns his ankle and falls. The boar then proceeds to, you know, just make a pincushion at him, basically, and turn him into uh, shoelaces. Uh, it's it's sort of, you know, it's 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 pretty intense little number that this pig does. And, you know, when he's finished, he just sort of struts daintily away, um, leaving Charlie in a bloody heap. Back at the Boggs place, um, the hounds are going crazy. They're, they're barking and they're jumping and they're carrying on. And uh, Dute and Fishhawk um, suspect that maybe the boar's in the area, that maybe, maybe the dog's got a scent. And so they let the dogs loose and they lead them, they kind of follow them, to what you think will be Charlie. But actually, it's Shep. Uh, you know, Corby's German Shepherd. It appears that um, the board notched two kills that day. Uh, it sort of comes out of nowhere. Uh, we next see the family, and they're sort of gathered at the burial of Shep. And Corby is, is really is one pissed-off kid. Um, he, he's ready to ex ex extract revenge um, right then and there. I mean, you can see it on his little freckled face. He wants blood. And he storms off to plot his revenge, and his family looks on very concerned. Now, in the book, um, this doesn't happen. Uh, basically, uh, as far as the dog is concerned, uh, Shep gets out, and he's accidentally um, gored by the hog. And um, Fishhawk finds him, and he brings him back to the Boggs farm, where he actually nurses him back to health. Um, in the book, the, you know, the dog does not die. But it doesn't mean that Corby's not mad, but he's not really mad at Fishhawk. Um, and we'll get to that here in just a minute. But uh, at dinner, in the movie, uh, at dinner, they're at dinner, and it's very quiet, and uh, Marshall Furman is there, and he's sort of, you know, relaying uh, to the family about how the town is so scared to death of this thing. And he practically begs the fishhawk, please, please, please take care of it. And, uh, you know, fishhawk says, I can't. Like, you know, I, I gotta go. Uh, at point which Corby says this. You don't care what happens to Shep. He's just a drunk old Indian. What a freaking brat. I mean, I know you're hurting, kid. I get it. 
But that is not Fishhawk's problem. Um, you know, you don't need to be taking that out on him. You have a daddy that's sitting right on your right side. Why aren't you asking him to shoot that pig? I mean, Fishhawk has no dog uh, in this fight, uh, no pun intended. I mean, he coldly offered to replace Shep, you know, hoping it would kind of ease his pain. But no, 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 no. Let's make Fishhawk feel like the a-hole here. I mean, Fishhawk doesn't want to hurt Kirby. Kirby, uh, Corby, but he's got his own struggles going on right now. Um, after that, you know, tension is really high in the family, and Sarah apologizes to Fishhawk for Corby's um, rudeness. Uh, but the moment is broken uh, up by the barking of dogs yet again, and this time it's Marcus um, who's carrying the news of Tosac Charlie. I ain't the big fish You have come for it. It's Tosac Charlie. And he burned his days. What happened? Well, going past the old used to be old Hudspeth place, I, I hear him moaning, groaning there in the bushes, and we, I took him over to Gideon's farm. That was nearest. Did you get any of that? <laughs> uh, that guy plays a way better drunk than uh, Will Sampson ever could. But uh, the crew um, heads over to a man by the name of Joseph, Joseph Gideon's place uh, to find Charlie. And the Gideons, um, apparently in this movie, um, are uh, Charlie's caretakers. We've never met them before. Uh, he's never mentioned them before. It's just sort of assumed that they take care of him. But they're really ugly. They're really ugly to him. And they don't even let him in the house. Uh, Charlie, they I mean, they don't even let Charlie in the house. Um, they sort of have a place uh, set up in the barn, and he lives in a stall. And uh, Fishhawk takes one good look at Charlie, and he says, you know, call a doctor. Uh, the Gideons uh, say no, and that nobody has the money for a doctor, especially for a guy like Charlie. Well, that really uh, pisses off Fishhawk, and he says, you know, I have money that the bogs owe me. You can just use that. So um, even in those times, uh, affordable health care plan was, was just a pipe dream. But, uh, you know, as, as the scene plays out, you get just further and further that Mr. Gideon and Mrs. Gideon don't really seem to have uh, a care in the world when it comes to Charlie because we get this exchange. You could have left him alive. He's scared of the dark. I done what I could, but I ain't a doctor. I told Gideon to bring him in the house. Ain't Christian leaving him in the barn. I ain't about to put no bloody up half wit in my bed. Mr. Gideon, would you please bring me some hot water, a little whiskey, and some clean rags? I won't charge you for the rags and the water, but if you want to get drunk while you're waiting for the hearse, whiskey will cost you a dollar. You're a small man, Joseph Gideon, and I'm ashamed my friend Charlie Moffat fell into your hands. What the hell's ailing you? The whiskey is for Charlie's hurts. Oh, didn't I bring that engine in out of the cold and set my wife to tend in him? This here's my part. Yeah, Fishhawk taking care of business right there. Uh, once he's taken out the white trash, he uh, tends to a, a dying Charlie. Uh, he turns his attention to him, and he's you know really trying his best to console him. And Charlie's obviously frightened, and he knows that just you know prior to the conversation that he had had with him, uh, you know, before. Well, the doctor arrives and without, you know, so much as even, you know, giving him a second glance, just de declares him dead. And he says something like, I, you know, I wish that idiot would have just died in the field. That way I wouldn't have had to have come out all this way in the rain. Uh, certainly, as you can tell, uh, you know, medical care hasn't really changed that much over the years in it. <laughs> but uh, that statement just pisses Fishhawk off royally. You'll get paid when it's over. 
Well, I told you, he's done for. You stay put. Charlie comes to, I want him to see there's a doctor. I've got better things to do than wait for a half-wit to kick the bucket. You stay put. That's where I set you. No Indian's gonna order me about. Well, one just did. I've got some things to see to now. But if I come back and find you not where I set you, you're gonna lose your hair. Oh! That is the second mention of a scalping on the podcast. The first one was Tonto in Legend of the Lone Ranger. Uh, saying it about John Reed. And now we have Fishhawk telling the doctor that he's going to scalp him. But uh, Fishhawk, you know, storms out uh, of the hotel and he uh, he's off to pick up, pick out the fanciest casket because he promised Charlie that that's what he, that he, you know, that he would do for him. So uh, he goes and he gets one just like Charlie described in the book. It's got aged, it's aged polished walnut. It's got nickel hinges German silver handles. It's waxed to make keep the moisture out. It's got a feather bed on the inside. I mean, this thing is like plush. It's like the Cadillac of coffins. Uh, the problem is, though, is that uh, the Undertaker refuses to sell it to Fishhawk because it says, he says that the uh, that a, a judge already has dibs on it. Well, Fishhawk just you know dismisses that nonsense with a wave of his hat, and you know he's like, just make sure it's there. So Fishhawk returns, and he, he's back at Charlie's bedside, and uh, Charlie sort of miraculously starts, you know, coming out of his coma, and he sees the doctor, and, and he sees Fishhawk, he sees the box, and he smiles really big because, you know, he's like, I, he knew he could trust the old Indian, and Fishhawk asks him, like, what happened, Charlie, what's going on? And Charlie tells the story about getting attacked um, by the hog. Was it a, a thing, a person done this to you, Charlie? <sighs> it's like old Satan. So, so big and hairy, and these ears like this bat's ears, and, and the teeth is sticking out all, all over the place. I, I don't think it was a boar that killed Charlie. Maybe a snag. Ah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm just joking. But uh, with that statement, uh, Charlie, you know, makes the journey, and um, at that point, Fishhawk sort of knows what he's got to do. So he goes back to the smokehouse um, where he lives, and he gets all warriored up. I mean, he's braiding his hair. He's putting on um, like silver jewelry. He's uh, got a bone choker on. He's got feathers in his hair. He wraps himself up in a blanket. Um, he's getting ready to go handle this. And he walks outside uh, to pay his last respects to the family grave before he leaves. So it's sort of like he knows that he's probably not going to come back. Before I move on, I want to talk about um, you know him deciding to go kill the boar has nothing at all to do with um, Corby or Shep. Uh, it has everything to do with, with Charlie. And in fact, there's a little paragraph in the book that talks about this. It says here that um, Corby seemed to have made up his mind that the old man would leave when the rain stopped and the corn was dried out enough to pick. And he was no longer angry that the Indian wasn't going to avenge Shep. It was obvious that the dog was going to get well now. Corby had somehow grown up a lot. Though he had to lie in bed with his mother's pulses on his chest, he was planning for the hunt and the killing of the boar. 
So the only thing in the book that Corby wanted was just to be there to watch the boar die. So, uh, yeah, the movie makes it seem like the, you know, that he's doing this for Corby when, in fact, he's, he's not doing it for Corby at all. Okay, well, it's finally time for the uh, third act to unfold. It's, it's time to kill that effing boar, but not before Corby uh, attempts it first. You see, Corby is um, walking along the woods, and he's still bad-mouthing Fishhawk under his breath. He's still, you know, bitter at him. And he's kind of carrying his rifle, and he's sort of, you know, just like, oh, stupid Fishhawk, I'll show him. Um, and then, unrelated, you see the scene of this mountain lion and these little cubs. And the mother is, like, screeching and howling with fury. And at the foot of this, the rocks there is a little cub that's been killed. Um, apparently, it's another casualty in the wake of this really spiteful pig. But the noise is enough to kind of frighten Corby, and he sort of runs. And it's one of those you know scenes where like you run, but he gets lost. He can't figure out where he's at. And the fishhawk kind of walks up, and um, he sees a smoke signal you know, coming um, above the tree line there. And he says, oh, it's coming from the Boggs Ranch, and Corby's in trouble. How he knows that, I have no idea, but apparently he does. And uh, he starts desperately yelling for Corby, but the, his calls go unanswered. Uh, so you sort of get this back and forth uh, between Corby walking, and then you get Fishhawk walking, and then you get Corby tracking, and then you get Fishhawk tracking Corby. And it's just sort of, like I said, like this back and forth. And then I forgot to mention this, though. The whole time Corby is walking around, the other two little mountain lion cubs are sort of frolicking along play, playfully uh, with, with Corby. And one of the little wild cat cubs or whatever they are, you know, darts into some high grass and, you know, Corby's like, Hey, get back here. So he runs into this high grass and he comes face to face with that really hateful hog. And the hog makes a run at him and he's ready just to spear him. And Corby, you know, turns around and on foot, he takes off trying to outrun him. But of course it's useless. I mean, we've already seen that, uh, you know, the pig can run people down. If he's not going to outrun Charlie, he's certainly not going to outrun Corby. But, um, so Corby kind of runs up this little Charlie Brown tree and he's sort of shaking and holding on for dear life. Well, that's enough for Fishhawk. He, you know, he, he comes up and he, he arrives on the scene and he fires a warning shot in the air and the pig, it gets that pig's attention and immediately turns and starts chasing Fishhawk and Fishhawk's trying to reload, but he's also running at the same time. And, um, you know, he's kind of closing in and, uh, they're about like 25 feet apart and, you know, the fish hawk, you know, trips and he, he drops his gun and the pig now has him in his sights and he's closing in on the fallen Indian. But then all of a sudden he just sort of stops mysteriously and the pig starts running, um, all over the place, kind of manically, uh, maniacally. And, uh, it's, it's just, you know, running circles. It doesn't make any sense. It ends up back at Corby's tree, and the kid starts kicking at the, you know, kicking at it, and you know the fishhawk comes up ready to kill, and he's got the, he draws a bead on him, and he's getting ready to pull the trigger, but then he just doesn't, he stops, because he realizes there's something wrong with the pig, and it's sort of snorting and squawking at the air, and Corby's pleading with fishhawk, kill it, fishhawk, kill it, but he doesn't. He's just watching it, he's just observing the behavior of it. And finally, the pig kind of calms down and just sort of starts peacocking between the two. And uh, Fishhawk picks up a stick and he tosses it uh, in the opposite direction of the pig. And the pig starts running towards the sound of that stick hitting the grass. 
Well, it turns out he's blind, and you know, Fishhawk decides right then and there that he's not gonna, you know, kill the kill the pig. And he walks over to Corby, and he's just like, "Come on out, man. It's fine. You know, you're safe now." And the whole time, the hog is just sort of running around and rooting around. And, and Corby asking, "Like, why aren't you gonna kill him, Fishhawk?" And he says, "You know, uh, he's blind. It's it's kind of cold hearted to shoot a maimed animal." And he gives the rifle to Corby and says, "If you want him dead, then you shoot him." Um, very brash for a film to do this, I think. And uh, Corby, you know, um, raises the rifle to his eye and you know, getting ready to pull the trigger, and uh, he's staring down the barrel, and uh, he just can't pull the trigger, literally. You mean we ain't gonna kill him? He's blind. He's dying. But he killed Tosak Charlie and Shep. You kill him. and kill them a thing that'll die with the first snowfall. So in the book, um, there's a scene that uh, establishes that Corby is very tender-hearted. Uh, they're, you know, Fishhawk's teaching Corby how to track deer and um, they come upon this buck and uh you know, he's kind of coaching Corby on, on how to do this. Well, long story short, he ends up uh, killing the buck. Uh, Corby does. And they're tracking it through the, the woods. And when they come across the carcass, uh, Corby starts crying. And he says, you know, to Fishhawk, I can't believe that just, you know, seconds ago, this thing was a, a living, breathing creature. And now it's just an empty, dead carcass. And, uh, Fishhawk says, you know, well, the creator put these things here for us to survive on and that any time that you take a life that you should give thanks uh, to the deer for providing and give thanks to the creator for providing. So they do so. So it's this really kind of tender moment um, between Fishhawk and Corby that once again, you don't really see in the book. And I think the reason why is because of the age thing. Like I said, in the book, Corby's 11, but here he's only like seven years old. So it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. Uh, for him to do that the whole pig hunting scene is also a lot different in the book first things first it's not just like a single day trip it's like a week-long uh, excursion that the fishhawk starts out by himself for the first three days and then he sort of just kind of stumbles upon Corby um, and Corby kind of explains like well I just wanted to be here he doesn't have any plans on killing the pig himself he's just sort of you know kind of you know uh, tagging along so to speak but uh this is kind of how, how it sounds in the book. Um, it says, The fishhawk moved quickly, and he snatched up a fist-sized stone, and he leaped to a patch of moss under a white oak. The boar shot toward the sound of the projectile, but the Indian was not there where the sound had been. He's blind, said the fishhawk. Do you see, Corby? The animal charged, but the Indian was gone, and the boar ran across a white oak with a force that knocked him down with a great whooshing grunt of pain as the wind left him. Shoot him, cried Corby. He'll get you in a minute. 
The fishhawk had used uh, the time when the boar was stunned to gather more rocks. With these in one arm, he uh, laid the rifle silently in the tree fork. What are you doing, fishhawk? cried uh, Corby, horrified. But the Indian didn't answer Corby. He spoke to the boar in a dialect of old Osage, and he gave the boar a command that brought the fearsome animal to his feet. As if propelled by a sling, the boar shot toward the old man, foam flying from its jowls, and it looked to Corby as if nothing in the world would stop the terrible force of the charge, but something did. When the boar was only a few feet away, the old man seemed to gather himself, but not ex excitedly. There was no panic in his movement or fear. He merely sidestepped soundlessly aside, and the wild boar thundered past, crashing into a clutter of hazelnut sprouts beyond. The boar was a monstrous machine, run by scent and sound, but the battle that followed was like a bullfight, with the target never quite where the boar had charged. Ten times the enraged animal charged the fleeting voice or sound of fishhawk, foam slathering, his, arch, his back arched like a battering ram, and each time it was the sound of a rock in the leaves or a scent that he charged, but the man who had made them was gone, and on the fifth charge he had hit the tree again, head on, with terrible force, but the boar only staggered to his feet and renewed his attack. So this just goes on and on until the boar sort of just tires itself out and uh, kind of gives up. And I think the theme behind that is just uh, you have to face your, it's like facing your fears. Uh, once you've kind of overcome the fear of whatever obstacle is in front of you, then you can kind of sit back and, and, and breathe a sigh of relief and know that, um, you know, that you don't really need to, to do anything other than just sort of let nature run its course. Well, back to the movie, uh, after that little scene, uh, Corby and Fishhawk kind of head back to the farm and they're walking along the trail and, and Fishhawk picks up one of the little mountain lion cubs and he carries him home and they're greeted by the Boggs family and of course Dute wants to know right away like what about that hog Fishhawk did you get it uh, not even really seeming to have a whole lot of concern for his son that has been missing but the Fishhawk explains you know why he didn't kill the pig well it still beats me how you could have that old boy dead to rights like that and not shoot him down well, when I saw him, he's weary, and he knows he's the last of his kind. That boar's finished. Hmm. And a man don't need the blood of a dying animal to prove he's strong. In the morning, them soldiers needed the blood of my paw to prove they were strong, and that the Osage was finished. I never thought about it that way before. I'm not really sure what he means by that. And I've tried to look at it a couple of times and I've looked in the book for answers and I've looked, you know, I've rewound it. I've watched this movie probably like six times for this podcast. But, um, I think maybe he's saying that they treated his paw like an, like an animal. Like, I'm not really sure, uh, what he's alluding to there, but either way, it's time for Fishhawk to head out. So he sort of goes back and he says goodbye to, to Sarah and, you know, she's, kind of apologizes for her behavior and you know dude of course is talking about like well i'm not going to be able to get drunk with anybody anymore and you know so on and so forth um but either way he makes it pretty clear that he's not coming back and corby walks fishhawk out and they walk down to some railroad tracks sort of this you know generic sentimental music's playing in the background and time to cue the waterworks 
If you miss that, uh, it's sort of the only time in the film that it's sort of hinted at uh, what the fate of Fishhawk is going to be. That his plan is that he wants to return to the place where he was the most happiest as a boy, uh, the play, the land of the Osage. And uh, in the book, again, it's handled just a little bit differently. In the book, uh, at the end, they're all sort of sitting around telling stories of the hunt uh, of the boar, and Corby's regaling the family. But uh, Fishhawk uh, sort of just sitting there listening and taking it all in. And it says, uh, The Indian stuffed his pipe indolently and lit it, savoring everything about this moment. His last contact with a house and a family and well-made biscuits and brown gravy and a way of life that he would never need again. In the days of the Osage, when they were the people from the stars, fallen to earth, according to legend, like acorns from the far stars, there had been... The Noan Hoenshinka, the little old men, whose history of life and the world became the spoken Bible of the Osage. The fishhawk felt that perhaps at last he was, like his father, about to become a little old man. Perhaps in his last days he would once again practice, in his solitary life, the ways and the language of his people. There was so little he remembered from the camps of his father's tribe and it would be pleasant on the long winter nights to remember and piece together what he had known as a boy. The times when the Osage were the Washashi, and the name had had a soft and lovely sound. Of course, in the movie, there's uh, no time to dwell on this because they're still trying to hammer home the fact that this is all about Corby, which it's not. Uh... So what happens is, uh, you know, Fishhawk, you know, kneels down and they, they say their goodbyes and um, he ends up giving him back the bear claw necklace. Now, I don't remember if I told said it or not, but, you know, when Corby got mad at Fishhawk, um, he took off the necklace and threw it at him. Um, so anyway, uh, Fishhawk gives it back to him and they say their final goodbyes and uh, Fishhawk turns and he starts to walk away, he picks up little Ebo and then he turns around and he says this. Hi there, Marcus, you old son of a bitch. Nah, I'm just kidding. He doesn't say that. That'd be awesome if he did, though. Uh, actually, he he says uh, the film ends with uh, you know obviously Fishhawk saying goodbye, and uh, Corby gives us a grown-up Corby gives us this end narration. I never saw him again after that. Years later, I heard of his passing. He died peacefully, 
and was buried with his people by the White River. Been 30 years since I last saw him, but I'll bet a week hasn't gone by that I haven't thought about him and the time we shared together. Yeah, the book just sort of ends um, kind of the same way. Uh, it's instead you don't get the epilogue as to what happens to Fishhawk. He just sort of turns, walks away, and disappears into the trees, never to be seen again. And that's how the book ends. So that's pretty much it. That is Fishhawk, nineteen seventy nine TV movie. For the cigar store groaners on this film, um, if you're just joining us for this episode. Uh, what that is is the you know the, those emblematic stereotypical bigoted native tropes that you commonly see in in movies and television programs that feature indigenous characters themes or storylines and again I call them groaners because every time I see one played out on screen it literally causes me to groan out loud with frustrations so here is the top ten groaners for uh, Fishhawk first one is uh, drunk Indian is there a drunk Indian in this movie. Yeah, Fishhawk, but I'm only going to give it a half a point because um, he redeems himself. I mean, he sort of comes to terms with um, how he's messing up in his life, and he sort of redeems himself. So I'm going to give that a half a point, uh, Drunk Indian. Number two, does the lead character have a white best friend or girlfriend? Uh, yeah, I, I would say that Marshall Furman is, is uh, Fishhawk's best friend, but... Uh, we're going to go with Corby on this one, so I'll give that a half a point. Number three, is there a medicine man or shaman? Uh, bonus points if the lead character goes on a spiritual journey. The answer to that question is no. Number four, is the antagonist white? Or bonus points if he or she turns out to be the hero? No. Uh, number five, uh, is there a native turncoat or a sellout? No. Is there a bar fight? No. Is there a mention of peyote or any sort of hallucinogenic spiritual journey? Uh, no, there is not. Number eight, did any characters use racial names um, or get called anything inappropriate? That is a yes. Injun, um, I-N-J-U-N. Um, but other than that, uh, it was a lot of um, descriptions, sort of like dirty Indian or smelly Indian or drunk Indian, etc., etc. So I'm going to give that one one point. Does the character receive an Indian name? No. And then is there a mention of a scalping? Yes. There is a mention of a scalping when uh, Fishhawk tells the doctor that he's going to scalp him if he doesn't uh, uh, sit still. So all in all, uh, Fishhawk gets a uh, 3.5 on the groan scale. Very low groans. So my final thoughts on Fishhawk is that, you know, this is a very charming movie. And I feel I say that a lot um, in my film reviews. But it really is. It's one of those movies you can kind of gather around in the fall um, because you know the movie takes place in the fall and just kind of watch with your family. And the, the real star here, obviously, is Will Sampson. Every time he's on screen, I mean, he just gives a really commanding performance as Fishhawk. Uh, you know, in this movie, he really has the opportunity to let loose and show off his acting chops. And uh, but my favorite parts of the film were just the scenes where there is no dialogue. He's just there by himself and he just has this amazing presence. He has this look that just it tells everything that the audience needs to know about what the character's feeling or what the character's thinking. And he's just like I said, he's just he's just such a joy to watch. And um, you walk away with just 
even more respect for Will Sampson than you had going into it. Well, I only thought by breaking each episode into two parts I could keep it down to about an hour to hour and 15 minutes. But, uh, you know, when you're doing an episode like Will, about Will Sampson, you got to kind of go big, right? Um, you got to make an episode as big as the man himself. If you're hungry for more Will Sampson, though, I've got uh, one more episode coming up in a couple of weeks uh, about his life story. I'm currently piecing together um, the biography of the man just with stories and, and literature and YouTube interviews that have been shared with me by friends and family who I really just want to say, Mado, I appreciate you guys reaching out to me. I'm really excited to bring you that one. Um, if you're bored over the holiday weekend, you can download our old episodes. You can find them on iTunes and Spotify. You can also join our Facebook group, uh, Skoden Cinema. And you can find me on Instagram at uh, Skoden underscore cinema. I also want to thank uh, Elisa Harkins for providing the music today. Uh, her and Danny Wesley's song, uh, Creek Him is available on SoundCloud and on iTunes. And then the song that you're hearing now, Free Everybody, is, you can find that there as well. Download it, support her, Native American uh, singer and uh, performer. Uh, she's an amazing, amazing uh, artist. Before we sign off, I just want to wish everybody out there a, a good holiday. I know that's one of those areas that's kind of great for Native peoples to celebrate, you know, with uh, it being the first contact with, uh, uh, you know, white colonizers and uh, just kind of the, the heartbreak that happened, you know, shortly thereafter. But for me, you know, it's just really all about getting together with your family and uh, having that time, you know, that's provided to uh, sit and talk and visit and just love each other. You know, and I think just with the state of the world right now, we need that more than anything else as Indian people, you know, just to come together and, and celebrate each other and, and lift each other up because like I said uh, you know creator says you know that the, the tomorrow is not promised to us and that you have to take advantage of any opportunities that you can to see your family or call your family or be with your family because they're the ones that love you they're the ones that are going to give you that support and that that love that you that you desperately need in your life to keep you going so uh see if you can do that you know reach out to those people that uh you don't see uh or don't talk to uh it might surprise you you know uh reconnecting with people but appreciate you guys hanging in there with me on this episode like i said um meet me back here in a couple of weeks for the will sampson story and uh i hope you guys have a good good holiday stay safe and uh, uh be good to one another but oh Well, bye there, Marcus, you old son of a bitch. <laughs>